All right. Hi, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring issues of measurement and methodology in nursing science and practice. This is season two, episode 19, and I'm your host, Ian Lane. If you like what I'm doing and have enjoyed the podcast so far, please rate and review the show on iTunes so that more people have access to it. And if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com or visit my website at about.me backslash Ian Lane. As always, all opinions shared on this podcast are my own and do not reflect my employer, university, or affiliates. And nothing I share on this podcast episode or any other constitutes uh, medical advice. Everything here is for educational purposes only. Today, I am delighted to be joined by a special guest, a certified nurse practitioner named Brianna. Just hold on, let me see if I can get this right. Just go, we act. Awesome, awesome. Um, Bri is an acute care NP practicing in Georgia and is here to talk to us today about her experiences working in the ICU during the COVID-19 pandemic as an NP, and to discuss an interesting paper with me that was recently published by Shaw et al. in 2020 in the journal Critical Care Medicine. So Brie, tell us about yourself in a nutshell. Well, thanks for that super sweet intro. I appreciate that. Um, I, as you said, I'm a nurse practitioner. I work in acute care setting, um, ICU in specific. I've been doing that since 2017. Um, Before that, I had a 17-year career at the bedside, which I don't like to say a lot because that makes me seem a lot older than I really am. I like to keep that age just tucked in the back pocket, but I've been doing this for a long time. That's the the takeaway there. Um, I... So I went back to school in 2015 was when I made the decision to go back to school and started working in 2017. I work for two different hospital systems here in Georgia. One is sort of a part-time gig at a community hospital and my main full-time job, um, I love that job. It is a very big hospital system. We've been in a COVID hotspot from the get-go, but um, the service that I work for, we provide care for four different ICU types, everything except for neurosurgery and trauma. And I really like that because I get a, a balance of everything. I get to see a little bit of uh, various different uh, problems, which I like. And the physician colleagues that I have are super respectful. They love to allow us a lot of autonomy. We get to practice to the full scope of our practice, which I really appreciate because I don't know anybody who goes back to school to be a scribe. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't bring fulfillment in what we do and jobs that allow you to practice to the full extent of your scope are kind of rare. So I feel very blessed with where I'm at and who I work for right now. And yeah, I love healthcare. I've been in it my entire working life. So I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. That's fantastic. And I can tell you love it. I mean, partly we'll talk about this at the end uh, where people can find you, but you have a YouTube channel and you're educating people online. And so it's clearly something you're passionate about for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I really appreciate you coming on. This is uh, very, very exciting for me. Um, I'm very interested to learn about your experiences for sure. So do you mind if I ask, um, you mentioned the academic appointment that you have being in I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstanding, multiple different ICUs or just an ICU that kind of covers a little bit of everything minus trauma and neuro? What's the situation of you float between like CVICU and MICU? That's exactly it. So the service I work for, so within a hospital setting, 
you have different service lines and the bigger the hospital, the more service lines you have. So for example, if you go to Grady where there are nine ICUs, there may not be nine ICU teams, providers taking care of them, but there may be two or three and they float around between them. So the hospital where I work at, we have a very robust trauma service, which also kind of includes neurosurgery. So they have their own service line. I don't go to that unit. Um, I go to my group of, I think, 15 physicians and 10 APPs. We go to CVICU, CCU, main medical ICU, and now COVID ICU, which is our biggest ICU right now. Mm. So we get a mixed picture of patients. So every day I'll be assigned a physician, probably a couple of residents, and we as a team will go to one of the units and that's our unit for the day. And then we'll divvy up the census and um, you know, kind of go about our day, but I'm not always in the same unit. So I get a little bit of variety versus if you go to work for a subspecialty, say you go in neurosurgery, that's what you're gonna be doing every day or trauma, that's what you're doing every day. So you get very good at it the more you subspecialize, but then you kind of lose out on all of that experience. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so tell us a little bit, just to backtrack briefly, um, how did you end up in the field of nursing? What brought you here? And then what brought you into critical care? That's a great question. Uh, okay, so my mom was a nurse. Um, I remember, you know, I have a terrible memory. I can't remember. I can't even remember vacations I've taken. That's how terrible my memory is. But I remember sitting in my ninth grade biology class and the seat I was sitting in, we started talking about cell biology and I was just like wrapped, like just fascinated, you know? Um, and a lot of what I kind of talk about can get deep philosophically, but I just think, I just find it incredibly fascinating how perfectly the human body is made, you know, the infinite capacity, all these pathways to inherently protect itself. If this fails, then this happens. And how we were designed in my mind, how God designed us so perfectly to heal ourselves. And then you throw in the practice of medicine, you know, adding treatments and medications and therapies that can heal. It's just fascinating to me. I've always, I mean, since I was 14 years old, been fascinated by that. And I wanted to go into medicine. I was going to be a pediatrician. Actually, that's what I told my mom who was a radiology nurse. She was also a labor and delivery nurse and a midwife. But anyways, this is what I told her. My grand plan is to be a pediatrician. And then <laughs> I was in college, you know, four score and seven years ago mm -hmm. and in the late nineties. And um, I was a quarter away from graduating. That's when we were on the quarter system. I had pre-med biology degree. And I was dating a guy who's now my husband and we were talking about kids. And in my mind, I could not reconcile being a mom and being a physician, which was a blatant falsehood that I told myself for whatever reason, but I didn't think I could do both. So I switched from pre-med to nursing as a default because I wanted to have work-life balance. And um, so I kind of fell into nursing, but my plan was always to advance my practice because I'm much more interested in medicine and the treatment options and the mystery of diagnosing and the the magic of treating. I love all of that stuff. And even as a bedside nurse, I was always interested in figuring out what's wrong. What's wrong with this patient? What are we missing? How can we make them better? I love nurturing. Don't get me wrong. I think that's a huge part of what nursing does, but I was much more interested in the, you know, all the things I just discussed. So I had a bunch of kids. I had a husband who traveled. I got bogged down in life. And it wasn't until I sent my sassy four-year-old off to pre-K that I was like, well, what do I do all day? And that's when I decided to go back to school. Um, and then I did an accelerated program at Emory. It was 18 months long. It was absolute torture, but I would rather deal with 18 months of torture than three years of slow burn. So I just sucked it up and got it done. 
and then got my first job in 2017. So I love what we do because I get the nurturing aspect and the bedside manner of nursing, but I get to practice like a physician without all the liability and responsibility of a physician. So there's always someone I can go to and say, I don't know the answer to this and somebody else will. (laughs) It's the best of both worlds for me. Right. That's a really good point. And I really appreciate that. It's funny. Those of us who are oriented toward acute care do tend to have this very intense personality of like, just give, give it to me hard over 18 months and then I'll, you know, be right in the thick of it versus a slow burn, as you say. That's right. The buzz, the drama, I'm all about that. <laughs> we are that kind of person. <laughs> right. Well, speaking about the buzz and the drama, there's clearly been, it's been one heck of a year. Um, can you give us a sense, kind of maybe a broad overview of your experiences with COVID-19 patients so far? Oh my gosh. Is it possible to know that you have PTSD when you're in the middle of PTSD, in the middle of the trauma still, it's not post, it's still acute trauma because that's where we're at. That's where I'm at. That's where I was in March. That's where I still am now (laughs) in the middle of the trauma, but I know the PTSD is going to hit. It's been absolute hell. I mean, there's just no easy way to say that. Mm. Um, So, all right, let me drill down a little bit more because like I said, my main gig has been a COVID hotspot since March. So we've had three, we're in the middle of our third surge. So first surge in March, um, words can't even describe that. It was so awful. Um, it, first of all, I have never in 20 year career worked alongside physicians and seen them break down the way that they did in the heat of this, because we were scared. We had no idea what it what, how virulent it was, how susceptible we were. We had never seen people dying in mass. Like we were seeing a lot of it iatrogenic. We were intubating people and putting them on APRV, which is a high level vent setting, which has a lot of complications. We didn't know what we were doing. We were causing a lot of pneumothoraxes. I think we were causing a lot of deaths. So being a part of all of that and trying to make it better and making it worse and also not having your families there and having to talk to them over the phone, everything about it was traumatizing emotionally, physically. I, along with many of my colleagues had no idea how this was gonna spread, but we knew we were in the direct line of fire. So I moved out of my house for six weeks. Like I am very blessed. My in-laws have a vacation house in the mountains. So I went up there and I just lived there. I worked five, six days a week and I slept on my day off for six straight weeks. And, um, you know, it's, it was that, that was the worst of all for sure. Obviously not being at home, but also being scared for the families and the patients, the ones that we see in the ICU don't do well. But I mean, in the beginning, we didn't know that we thought if we just do all this stuff, we'll get them better. And so the devastation of, you know, giving everything to them and assuring their families we were doing everything we could over the phone and trying to tell them after, you know, six, seven weeks, they're in the ICU that they're not getting better. They're dying. And the family's finally accepting that, you know, it it was awful. Um, But the other part to the March surge was that in March, the population, like the general population was behind us for sure. Everybody had heroes at work signs. Everybody believed what we said. We were the heroes here to save the day. And I think a very telling illustration of that is I'm very active on my Facebook page. I put a lot of stuff, a lot of content out there about COVID, obviously. I shared a picture uh, that someone had taken of me when I was in garb talking to a family on Zoom about their family member and how I thought it was time to let them go. It was a palliative care talk that I was doing over Zoom, which is not what we usually do. We usually do this face-to-face, so it's hard. 
and you can sense like the devastation in it. My shoulders are dropped. And on this, I think the narrative, I said something like, you know, we're trying really hard to be surrogate loved ones. We're trying really hard to give them everything, but they're still dying. Um, and I think it was an, this was in April. So this was right as quarantine was ending for us here in Georgia. And so my appeal to the public was, you know, be vigilant. If you're going to go out into society again, be vigilant, be protective of each other because people are dying from this. It's real. That picture was shared like 12,000 times. There were like, I don't even know, thousands and thousands of comments, shares, likes, like lots of engagement from all walks of life. That was April. So, and then last week, last Saturday, I shared a picture of a wall of PPE that I took back in April when we were reusing the PPE. Yeah. And I, the narrative on that was, you know, we don't have to recycle PPE. We have plenty of vents because we're not intubating people from the get-go. We have all of these supplies. What we lack are people because people are burned out. They got burned out in the summer and now they're just over it. They're over it mentally. They're, they're tired of understaffing and... Um, high patient ratios, high acuity, overworking, overtime, fighting for their patient. And on top of that, fighting the families, fighting the public, fighting the politics. They're just done. They are leaving the bedside in numbers I've never seen before. So people are burned out. They are done. That was shared thus far, like 700 times. And I can see a percentage of the people who is sharing it. It's all by healthcare people. Right. It's not by the lay people because the lay people are over it. They're tired. The society in general is tired of talking about COVID. They're tired of hearing about it. They're tired of the sadness of it, but the healthcare people are dropping like flies. We don't have enough nurses at the bedside to take care of these patients. And that's happening before we started surging, which has just happened this week here in Georgia. Wow. So this is going to be the worst. That's, um, that's a really helpful context. I don't know, do you use figure one at all, the app? I've heard, yes, I remember using it in school, but I have not, yes, it, they send out like questions and uh, clinical content to keep you up to date. Yeah, and people kind of discuss cases and it's a yes, it's sort yes. of like a forum for healthcare providers and people in the field and yeah. I don't know if other people have had the same experience I have, but watching the conversation amongst healthcare providers on things like figure one, or even in other more available outlets like Facebook, for example, like you mentioned, the conversation between healthcare providers has been um, a very different experience than the, the ebbs and flows of the conversations among the lay public. Yep. Um, so that's interesting context because it's still so real for people working at the bedside. And yeah. uh, it's about to get you know even more intense we're in this very, I mean, intense spike right now. Yeah. So um, I have so many questions about that, but let's back <laughs> up just for a second. Um, I'm particularly interested in one of the things you said about the vent settings and how in the beginning we were learning some pretty significant lessons about sure. um, how to be ventilating these patients or not. Sure. Um, and, you know, the paper that we're going to discuss in a, in a couple minutes here is uh, presumably because of the lag between the time of conducting the study and publishing the study, it was probably among that first sort of wave it was. of patients. It was. Um, okay. So wh what are some of the things that you have to say about the beginning in terms of how we were ventilating patients and what are the, some of the learnings that you've come away with from that? 
Yeah. So all of the, all of the treatment options that we've been using. So let's go through them a little bit more. Um, number one is intubation. So the first wave, the very initial wave, we were intubating everybody because we didn't know how it spread. And we thought everything was going to be aerosolized and almost as protection for the staff, we were intubating people. When you got to the point where you were needing more than six liters nasal cannula, you got intubated. Well, that didn't last long. We ran out of vents pretty quick. We were um, already talking about triaging our vents and limiting critical use, which is super scary. That means that basically if you come into the hospital and there's not enough vents, you as a patient would have to go through a blind committee who would say, yes, this person gets a vent or no, this person doesn't get a vent, which is, it makes me sick to my stomach to even think about. Thank God we never had to do that. But that's where we were headed. So we're like, oh no, no, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to figure something out safe that we can do to oxygenate these people without having to put them on ventilators. And, um, but we didn't know that for a while. So we were intubating a lot of people. What you see at the bedside is that clinically, these people on paper, they look like ARDS, profoundly hypoxic. Their PF ratios will be less than 100 routinely, 70s, 80s. They are not getting oxygen into the bloodstream. But when you go in the room and look at them and talk to them and you say, are you having a hard time breathing? No. And they're just staring at you and you're like, your oxygen, like your PO2 on your gas is 54 and you're on a hundred percent vapotherm, like in the nose, what the heck, but they will be tachypnic and they will be coughing, but they're not winded like ARDS as of before 2019 ARDS like that, you're huffing and puffing, you're dying, you're blue. It's time to intubate. Mm -hmm. So to be looking at someone clinically who looks nothing like they look on paper just defies logic. So nobody really understood the pathophysiology. I still don't think we understand it. We were intubating a lot of people based on their oxygen level on not what they were doing clinically. And once you intubate these folks, you still have to give them a profoundly high amount of FiO2. They're still on hundred percent. We're giving them high PEEP up to the like 18, 20 mark. And when you put that much pressure into the lungs, well, what happens? The lungs blow out, you get pneumos. Um, this disease is also showing us that it makes the lungs quite friable. So then they're more prone towards pneumos and things of that nature. And then because it doesn't turn around quickly, they're on mechanical intubation for, I mean, typically we intubate someone in the mouth for a week. After about a week and we can't get them off a vent, it's time to trach because you can cause permanent damage with it in the mouth. You can cause um, tracheal paralysis, you know, repeated pneumonias, multiple complications. So usually about a week, I'm telling my families, okay, I'm not going to be able to excavate them. It's time to put it in the throat. Well, now we're leaving them orally intubated for a month at a time. It's not intended for that to be the case. And when you provide positive pressure ventilation for that long, you cause things like GI bleeds, you cause hypotension, a multitude of complications that now we're having to deal with because they're on the vent for so long. Not to mention the fact that they're still on a ventilator for a month, which is taking up an ICU bed for a month. <laughs> So long prodrome, long period of time on the vent, multiple complications. And the families in the beginning were saying, you know, I, I appreciate you doing everything that you can. They'll make it or they're not. Well, now they've, you know, there's so much access to information, whether it's true or not now. And the lay people are researching all of this and they come up with these you know, astronomical ideas and they blame you for not using whatever this miracle drug is that someone has expounded on and that's why they're not getting better. So it's very hard to convince people that no, when you get to the degree that you are sick enough to need ICU care and then require intubation, your odds of survival are slim to none. And we need to have this very blunt discussion up front because, and this is, sounds awful, but this person's going to take up a bed for a month. 
that someone else that may have more chance of surviving could have. So it comes down to a lot of ethical decisions like that. Um, but that's basically where we're at now. We don't into, we, I will tell my families, I will tell my patients, I don't want to intubate them until it is literally life or death. I will let them be profoundly hypoxic for three, four weeks and then intubate them if they really want me to. But once I intubate them, they're sedated, they're often paralyzed, they're prone, they don't wake up again and they die a very slow, arduous death. They're not participating with their environment anymore. So I want them awake and participating as long as humanly possible and it preserves our vents. So that's kind of the, where the pendulum has swung as far as intubation goes. And I think most of my colleagues are there as well. Um, when is the, the safe point that you can push people before you have to intubate them? Right, I appreciate that. You know, in the beginning, um, you know, one of the other podcasts that I follow for my listeners that are always interested, um, I get a couple random questions here and there about, you know, what are the, the top three or four podcasts that I listen to, one of them, is the MCRIT podcast by- Oh, love Scott Weingart. (laughs) Scott has a phenomenal podcast. For those of you who haven't listened, I would urge you to go listen, particularly if you're interested in physiology and complex ICU care. Um, They were talking in the beginning, you know, back in February, March, April about um, happy hypoxemics, which is Mm -hmm. what you're Mm -hmm. getting at, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what percentage of- people would you say fell into that sort of happy hypoxemic category that you oh the vast majority of them that's so interesting yeah um so one of the other things that you mentioned i think is a good lead-in to the paper that we have to discuss here um it was about how um you talked a lot about the vent and how some of the things we learned moved us far away from that um, and of course, that was right in the beginning wave, this first wave, wave of the pandemic. Um, so we have some data from that, from one of the hospital systems in Georgia. Um, do you want to move right into the paper? We can do that now. I'll- yeah, sure. Great. So what I'll do is I'll just introduce everyone to sort of a brief overview of the methodology and what they did. And then we'll chit chat about that. Um, so the paper was called is cardiopulmonary resuscitation futile in coronavirus disease 2019 patients experiencing in-hospital cardiac arrest? And this, as I mentioned, was by Shaw and colleagues from a Georgia medical system. Um, So this was a single center retrospective cohort study. Most of the patients were older adults. There were about 63 who experienced in-hospital cardiac arrest in this sample. The overall sample had almost 1,100 people in it, so it was a pretty good sample size as a whole to to choose from. Um, The mean age in this population was 66 years, and the intervention was essentially just attempted ACLS resuscitation efforts in these COVID-19 patients. Um, For the nerds in my audience like myself, the measure that they used to assess comorbidities were, was the Charleston Comorbidity Index, the CCI. And those comorbidities included hypertension, 89% of patients had hypertension, obesity, 70% of the patient population had obesity, type two diabetes was 60% of the population and 33% had chronic kidney disease. And of these, I'm thinking specifically those patients that experienced in-hospital cardiac arrest. There were, of course, others in the broader population they looked at. And one of the things that 
I particularly found interesting is that as the disease progressed, 67% of these patients developed septic shock and 84% developed moderate or severe ARDS. So Bree mentioned the PF ratio. Some of these people had like 60s, 70s. They were mm. uh, greater than 80% of them were under 200. So that was pretty shocking to me when I had saw, uh, seen this myself. So one of the things I have a question for you about, Brie, is I've been hearing and reading a lot in the literature about uh, thromboembolic events in this population. But mm. interestingly, there were only about 6% of this sample that had thromboembolism problems. What's your take on like how significant the thrombotic problem is in these patients? How are you seeing a lot of that from your experience? Oh, for sure. Um, and actually, I would bet I would argue that part of the reason they're not finding more thrombotic events is because they're not looking for them. So uh, there is a let me see if I can remember that. I can't remember the name of the physician. He's a GI physician, actually, who presented a model, a theory of how COVID works. And it, to me, makes the most sense for what I'm seeing at the bedside. And this phenomenon of profound ARDS in a patient who doesn't look like ARDS, the happy hypoxemic. And that is that COVID-19 is primarily a blood disorder. There is microthrombi throughout the body, but particularly in the pulmonary vasculature. So you have um, constriction of the blood vessels from the hypoxemia, and then you have all these microthrombi preventing blood flow. And when you don't get blood flow, you don't get oxygen in, you don't get carbon dioxide out. So um, I think there's microthrombi happening within the pulmonary vasculature, and then we are seeing thrombi everywhere else, strokes. Lots of young people having CVAs. Um, we're seeing MIs, we're seeing people come in with STEMIs, turns out they're COVID positive, but they were the asymptomatic, pulmonary asymptomatic COVID patient. We're seeing um, thrombi in the gut. I've had a couple people die from ischemic gut, SMA arteries get clogged off. Oh, wow. I've seen people, young people lose limbs, lower extremities, AKAs. Um, very common. Uh, so I think it's more from the fact that it was again, early on in April, and I'm not sure how much of it they were actually investigating into what they were seeing from a, a clotting standpoint. Um, one of the more recent guidelines that we've instituted is a tiered approach to anticoagulation. So based on what the D-dimer is, we, the D-dimer, the weight and the renal function, we will dose anticoagulation on a scale. So your, if your risk is lower, your D-dimer is lower, you may just get Lovenox BID. Then you may progress to a heparin infusion. Then we've given TPA to a few people. It really hasn't worked, but mm -hmm. we've been doing that. Um, so I, it makes more sense clinically with what we're seeing that this is a blood disorder and not a pulmonary disorder. Yeah. They don't get filling processes in the lung. They cough, but it's more, it's a dry cough. It's there. There's not dense consolidations. There's no productive sputum. It doesn't act like a pneumonia in the true sense of a pneumonia. Right. And of course, some of that, you know, RDS uh, problems arise from severe inflammation and some like neutrophil exactly. inflammation and all that. Exactly. But, but to your point, yeah, you're not seeing that kind of consolidation that you might see in other pulmonary diseases. Right. One of the things I've been thinking is that um, and this is kind of off topic, but uh, I find it interesting that there is, there seems to be an epithelial tissue centric uh, problem here in terms of the receptor binding domain. 
uh, mm -hmm. attaching to what seems to be, I mean, it attaches to the ACE2 receptor as we know, but it strikes me that these ACE2 receptors seem to be pretty dense on epithelial tissues throughout the body. So in the liver, in the gut, right. uh, there seems to be a lot of comorbidities in these gastrointestinal um, organs as well. So it's yeah. a very interesting disease and we are really at the, the beginning of understanding it. So I appreciate you going down that rabbit hole with me a little bit. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it is definitely fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating and to your point earlier, terrible. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, I can only imagine the acute uh, traumatic stress problems that are occurring in um, families and providers right now. So yeah, yeah, burnout is real. But you know, and then back to this paper. So the thing that is interesting about this article, I mean, I know the institution where this, where this retrospective study was done. I, I know. And I know people who have worked there. We have a lot of travelers who've been there as well, too. So I know from word of mouth what their standard of care was. Um, and no slight to them whatsoever. This was in the height of the pandemic when they knew nothing and had no staff and they were a hotspot in Georgia with no resources. Right. But the standard of care was not the standard of care that we know to be good. So I question how many of these patients would have truly arrested to start with, um, number one. And number two, um, would they, I mean, I think it was like half of them survived, got ROSC and survived, but then died before they left the hospital. That I think is more telling than anything because that, that's been my whole point all along is that when these families argue these things about, well, if we just use this miracle drug or that miracle drug, no, none of it matters. The convalescent plasma does not matter. The remdesivir does not matter. The vitamins definitely don't matter. What matters is just truly luck of the draw. If you're sick enough that you're going into multi-system organ failure and you need to be intubated, you are not likely to survive. And, but, and so I can tell people that all day long. I can talk to nine different families and spend hours of my day talking to the families. But what I'm seeing at the bedside does matter to them. But if I have some data to tell them, you know, studies have shown us when people progress to the point of cardiac arrest, they don't come back. I would urge you to consider DNR. It's more impactful than me just saying people don't do well, you know? Yeah. So I do appreciate the fact that they, we have this article and hopefully we'll get more and more um, information to help us guide these discussions with these people until we can figure out the solution. Right. I do wonder if there have been other prospective or retrospective studies similar to this since the, the beginning wave. Um, if there's been anything over the summer, for example, I'm not really aware of those, but, um, but yes, I completely agree. I think this was an important first contribution, initial contribution. Um, I have two quick questions for you based on what you just said. One is, um, what do you think, so in this sample, 30% got ROSC and then um, ended up passing away after the first couple of days. And just so that the listeners are aware, um, out of the 63 people they looked at, eight became DNR. So 12% of the sample became DNR and 100% of the sample expired across the time point, uh, all the time points looked at. So nobody survived after they did hit that um, in hospital arrest scenario. So I'm curious based on that, and what you said earlier, Brie, um, what do you think the critical point is at which you say, um, you know, this really is not going to turn out well? Is it having the arrest? Is it um, being intubated? What's the point where you're starting to think like this is not going to end as well? Well, 
So uh, where I work, um, our COVID ICU has 33 beds. The floor below us has the same number of um, floor patients. And they're really, it's really more like step down because they are, I think they can take up to like 60% vapotherm before they have to come upstairs. If they have to go on BiPAP, they come up to us. Um, many of my colleagues downstairs, my hospital's colleagues are seeing people get better. Um, and they're giving, and all of the studies have told us this, we know this, steroids, convalescent plasma, these things may show benefit in people before they get to critical illness. Something happens you know, around day like five or six of the hospitalization. That seems to be the mark. Once they've been in the hospital for five or six days, three, they're gonna get better or they're gonna come upstairs to me. And usually when they come upstairs to me, they don't get better. Now, some people do, some, some people do. And I don't know, I recall a lady that was on BiPAP 100% for like three weeks. And I was like, when you're sustained like that, when it's going beyond the one or two week mark and you're requiring maximum amount of support of all the oxygen we can possibly give you, odds are not good. Uh, they're just not. Um, it's just sort of a waiting game. And it's a factor of, you know, how young are they? What are their comorbidities? What was their life like before? How much does their family want to push, you know? But, you know, this wave, we're seeing a lot of older people, 70s, 80s, they, they don't they do not do well. Right. They just don't. If they come to me, they're not going to do well. And sometimes a lot of those people, and that was partly heartbreaking as well in June, we were seeing a lot of older people, nursing home patients, older patients, and you'd go in the room and say, okay, it's time that we put the breathing tube in. They'd be like, deuces, I'm out. Nope, save that convalescent plasma for someone else. I don't want it. And you're like, oh gosh. <laughs> so we're just gonna go comfort measures now. Yep, that's what we're gonna do. And they were fine with it. Plenty of them were very peaceful about it. So we lost a lot of people, but um, hats off to them for being brave in that. But I, I don't know that there, to answer your questions, I don't know that there's a specific answer to that. I just know that if it's been more than five days, then they come to the ICU and they're in the ICU for more than five days, odds are less good they're going to improve. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned, and you know, I know that, um, you, so earlier you mentioned that the fact that 30% of them got ROSC and then deteriorated was intriguing to you when you first read these results. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that there, it might have been related to the standard, the differences in standard of care. Um, without getting into too many specifics, what do you think that the biggest impact um, is in terms of those differences? Um, well, I think that it's hard to say like what the circumstances were for the rest, right? They, they did say, I think 93% of them were PEA, and asystole and the other 7% were VFib. Yes. Well, we know that PEA and asystole has worse outcomes. Prime, I mean, you would assume that it's because of hypoxemia in these patients. That would, that would be the natural assumption, right? Um, could there have been something differently? I hear through the grapevine, and again, this is not, you know, substantiated in any, any documentation that I've seen, you know, were they paralyzing people? Were they proning them? I, I'm not really sure that they were. But having said that, the population that I see that I paralyze and prone, most of them don't get better either. So is it just that we are doing a better job making people DNR and so they don't get to the point where we have to resuscitate them? I don't know. I don't really know the answer to that. But the interesting part about half of them or 30% of them achieved ROSC and then died anyways, that's telling me to me because, again, that tells you they're just that sick. 
they are just that sick. You can't reverse this, this train once it's gone out the, tr- the, the gate. So yeah. everything comes back to what I'm seeing at the bedside, which is that if you're that sick, I'll pray for you. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, as somebody who's um, participated in a couple large scale multi-site trials, like I know what recruitment looks like and, you know, you're getting a sliver of the actual sample of people you're, you're interested mm-hmm. in looking at. And um, there are ways to, you know, make sampling uh, procedures more robust to, you know, being representative of the population, but it's very difficult. And, you know, in this population, or this, excuse me, this sample was pretty small. It was only 63 patients. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are some caveats that I have to the conclusions that were drawn. I mean, the fact is that it was a small sample size, 12% became DNR. Um, they didn't measure any clinician level factors like quality of compressions or anything like that. I don't know that they necessarily had to, but it was one of those things that they could have measured potentially. Mm-hmm. The uh, CCI, um, the Charleston comorbidity index is, a vac- it's actually a really good measure. Um, it's valid, it's reliable, but it has um, no calculation to include uh, obesity. And um, I think, what was it? 70% were significantly obese. Um, 70% of those who died were significantly morbidly obese. Mm-hmm. But you've actually echoed some of their conclusions, which are after a certain point, it feels like the vast, vast majority just don't stop that train. So if, you know, based on your experience, you've probably dealt with, I don't know, at this point, at least hundreds of ICU patients, probably thousands. So of those people you've had this experience with, what's the proportion that do leave the ICU when they get to this point? Oh gosh, if I just had to guess like 20%. Maybe, okay. maybe. Um, and the, I say that because the ones that leave, I remember leaving, you know? Um, and it, that's also too, just my, the daily interaction that I have with them, you know? So I don't always follow them through. So if it's just the day that I'm there, my, my colleague may come in the day after and move that patient out. But I, a lot of them stick out in my mind. Like we had a husband and wife up there. The husband was down on the other wing and he died. She stayed on hundred percent BiPAP for three weeks and then got better, but I thought she was going to die too. So that stuck with me because she survived and he didn't. Um, so we do have some that get better. We do, but it doesn't seem like it's anything that we're directly doing for them that makes them better. And that's disheartening as a provider because you're writing your note and you're like, well, here's the standard of care for COVID, but really uh, my plan is just to pray. <laughs> supportive care. <laughs> right. Sounds very helpless. <laughs> right. And certainly, you know, there are these um, preliminary larger scale studies of things. I mean, like remdesivir, from my perspective, looking at the data was promising, but then it sort of faltered. But there are, there's that large dexamethasone study that people point to. Yeah. But from what I hear you saying, and correct me if this is wrong, it seems like those are more helpful in the earliest stages of yep. the disease progression. But again, yep. there's this critical mass where, you know, no amount of the steroid is really going to help these people. That's right. I think my colleagues downstairs have a better opportunity to kind of turn things around. And we do use the remdesivir, but that's a $3,000 drug, mm. you know, it's for five days. So you look at something like that and the Decadron, which is super cheap, is really the only thing that's shown true benefit. Um, so we do that and we've kind of progressed to 
Some of my physicians will use solumedrol because the theory has better lung penetration, but the study was done with Decatron. So, you know, we tend to just use the Decatron. But then you do long-term steroids, what happens? You get critical illness, polyneuropathy, and these people can't move. So by the time they do survive to get trach and go to LTEC, they're profoundly weak to the point they can't even move their fingers. So that's the other piece of it. It's not just morbidity, it's the more, it's or not just the mortality, excuse me, it's the morbidity. These people are going to be debilitated for years. You know? right. So there's, there's that piece of it that we tend to not talk about because it's not as impactful to the public, but is definitely going to be impactful for Medicare dollars and for these families. Certainly. And I mean, we don't know yet what's going to look like a year from now for these patients or two years from now. And of course we have younger people who are having less severe illness, but that the longer term sequelae of which we're not going to be aware of for quite some time. And so yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely something to think about moving forward in terms of what is still left to be figured out. So I really appreciate that. So would you say then that you agree with their conclusions largely, which were that um, we should be pushing for DNR mostly in after this critical point, wherever that happens to be or? Yeah, that's what it's a hard call to make my, a big part of what, why I do what I do is because of palliative medicine. I actually went to MP school to be in palliative medicine. Emory had a fellowship there. And then I kind of, my mentor swayed me back in ICU, but I really love that piece of what I do. That brings me a lot of fulfillment to help people through their hour of greatest need and biggest tragedy. But with COVID, it's been so very, very different. Um, I, I still think it comes down to, you know, the belief in palliative medicine is that my goal is to support whatever the family and the patient's needs are. My goal is not to sway them to what I want because I have a different experience with that patient. They're my patient. This family knows them as a person and a human being and what their desires are. So I still think it's very important to uphold what this person wants done. And I have had plenty of people who are in their suffering for six weeks and look like death and they will still say, yeah, you do absolutely. I'm sorry. Can you hear that? You can't hear anything. Can you? No. Okay, good. I still have people who will, they desire all of that. They desire all the treatment. I have to support that. Even though I think, why would you want to put your body through that level of suffering to then just die? But they do. And I have to honor that. But it is helpful in the situations where the families don't have the patient to tell them what they want and are agonized over making this decision for their family to say, look, odds are not good. They're going to come back from this. If the heart stops on its own. Would we not just consider that an act of God and let them pass peacefully rather than putting through them through more of this torture and suffering, knowing that the odds are almost zero that we will get them back. At that point, they are succumbing to the disease. Let's just let them pass naturally. And that is very impactful. And I think helps people who are agonizing over hard decisions to make a more objective choice. Right. Absolutely. So I know we're coming up on time. We have a few minutes left. So before we transition to the closing remarks, I'm curious, you mentioned things like paralyzing and proning patients. Are you, do you think that there are things you wish that these authors would have looked at in this paper that they didn't? Yeah. I mean, I would like to know what the standard of care was before they got to a point of cardiac arrest, right? Because the presumption is they went into cardiac arrest because they were hypoxemic that would be the natural assumption. What did they do to prevent that from leading to this point? Um, and can we garner any information from that? Would the numbers at my organization who it, 
that has been doing this standard from the get-go, would we have the same results? I suspect we would, but it would just be interesting. Yeah, certainly. And that's one of my um, only criticisms of the, of the study from an inferential perspective, which is that because it's only at a single center and the standard might be different there than other places, they, you can't extrapolate from this small sample at this one inferential. And the only reason I say that is because in the conclusions, they tend to seem to want to draw broader conclusions than I think they are able to. But in their defense, I think that you have given a lot of credence to the clinical perspective on the ground of we're all seeing this. And it could very well be that it would look similar, as you said, but it would be interesting to see it cross, cross institutions. Yeah. Yeah. So as we're nearing the end, I'm, uh, you have, this is actually how I came to, know, to learn about you. I hope you don't mind us transitioning. Sure. Um, so you have a, a YouTube show, actually. Um, tell us about that. What prompted that? Oh, gosh. Well, my husband says I like being on camera too much. <laughs> um, I don't know. I Well, all right. Actually, I do know. I sort of had the thought that I would do this like a year before COVID hit. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Sean Dent. But yeah. He, yeah. So he, I've always really looked up to him. I think he has a big personality. And he's the only person out there doing the same kind of niche content work that I'm doing. And um, so I kind of had some thoughts about doing it mostly because, so I, you know, that country song, God bless the broken road that led me to you. Yeah. That's sort of my relationship with how I became a provider, except it wasn't quite broken, just long winded with lots of trials and tribulations. And my mom, who was my inspiration, of course, to go into healthcare, died when I was 24. So I didn't have her guidance throughout the years. But I do believe that, you know, where God closes a door somewhere, he opens a window for you. And I have been so blessed with the mentors in my life, the people who were put there in exactly the right time, exactly the right moment to push me and to inspire me to where I think I ultimately needed to be. This is the happiest I've ever been in my career. I'm exactly where I'm intended to be. And I finally feel like I'm fulfilling my calling. And I wouldn't be here if I hadn't been pushed by these other people. So I've always remembered that. I've always remembered the guidance that I had. And then when I got out of school, oh my gosh, like day one rounding, I was approached by probably 50 nurses. Hey, I hear you're new here. You went to, so you went to Emory. Now, what did they, what's that like? How'd you go to school? How do you get a job? How do you, I'm like, just bombarded with questions every day. But I feel because I was given so much guidance, I feel beholden to do that for others. And I also think in this profession, we should inspire each other and lift each other up. Anyway, so I had had this idea for doing a YouTube thing. I had recorded actually a couple of very amateurish videos and then decided eh, I'm not going to put myself out there like that. And then COVID hit and um, I shared a couple of videos on Facebook and they all went viral. And I was like, wow, clearly I need to be on film. So I'll just go ahead and make a YouTube channel. <laughs> so that's kind of how it came to light. And it, the purpose of it is to, you know, inspire and answer questions for you know, future NPs, because I had all those questions too. I didn't have anyone to answer it for me. And I remember going to Sean's webpage a lot, or his YouTube channel a lot and looking for content that he didn't necessarily have. And I didn't know who to ask. So I just put material out there about things that I was interested in and things I get asked all the time. And it's very rewarding for me, um, not financially, but I enjoy, it's, it's a good hobby for me. It's a good outlet for me. And I, I do still enjoy it. Certainly. 
I'm glad to hear that you've been enjoying it and I hope you keep putting stuff out because I think it's a really wonderful show. I mean, you do a great job. So where else can people learn more about you and kind of keep up with what you're doing? Um, well, obviously I'm very active on social media. Um, I am on Facebook and Instagram with my actual name, Brianna Jaskowiak. So B-R-I-A-N-A-J-U-S-K-O-W-I-A-K on both of those mediums. Put out lots of, you know, life-saving, mind-blowing information for you. So I have two final questions for you. First, what is one of the most impactful pieces of advice you've ever gotten and you, or you wished you got from somebody as a new acute care uh, provider? Um, I thought about this for a long time. I've gotten so much good advice from people. Um, well, let me, okay. So one of the things I was told when I was going to school and I was really, well, when I was trying to decide to go to school and I was paralyzed by analysis of should I or shouldn't I, someone told me two years will pass whether you're in school or not. So what do you want to have happened at the end of two years? And I have always remembered that. That's what got me through some really hard times when I was in school. So that's the most helpful I've ever gotten. And then um, Sean Dent has also said, and I love this, um, this doesn't get easier. What we do does not get easier. It only gets harder. <laughs> The difference is over time, you get better. You get better at what you do. You get better at the skill part of it. You get better at the emotional toll of it. And therefore it becomes easier for you. I like that because to say things get easier is, is a misnomer. It doesn't, it's still hard. I still learn new stuff every day. I'm just better at it. And so you just keep at it. It just gives you motivation to keep at it because you're going to have bad days. I had a bad day last month. I, when you make a medical error in this role, it is devastating and it can knock you down to take a lot of people out of this profession. Um, but you just get better. You get better, you grow, you change what you are doing and you go on to save other people. That's fabulous. Thank you for that. And if you were to recommend just one book, if you could pick one to every new APRN or CRNP, depending on the region, regardless of specialization, what would that book be and why? Um, so I thought about this for a long time. I thought about some clinical books that I absolutely love, but that doesn't apply to all specialties. So what I came back to was the Strengths Finder book. And I don't know if you've read that or are familiar with that, but this is a book, this is a personality, um, sort of a temperament sorting type of book, like the Myers-Briggs, and it helps you to identify your strengths and weaknesses within the profession that you have. And I think this is key because oftentimes the things that you think you're good at aren't what you're good at. And identifying your strengths and weaknesses will help you to grow within your profession and also to help you work with different personalities <laughs> because you're in school, you have all these ideals about how things are going to be when you get out of practice and all this autonomy and all these wonderful works you're going to do. And then you get out to work and you realize, Oh my gosh, you are hand tied to a physician and he's not very nice. <laughs> how do you deal with that? <laughs> so recognizing their strengths and weaknesses and your strengths and weaknesses will make your work environment so much more enjoyable and, and beneficial to you both. So I think no matter what field you go into, learning more about yourself and what you're good at and what you fail at will only help you grow more. Thank you so much. And uh, Bree, thank you for joining us today. This has been really wonderful. I really appreciate all your insights. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars on iTunes and share this channel with any friends in healthcare. 
If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Finally, I do this show because it helps me learn and not because I want to pretend to be the expert on these topics. My objective is simply to grow as a clinician researcher and promote this content for other like-minded people. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you'll join me again next time.